to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Welcome to episode 90 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Tim Walsh. Tim is the head coach of the Aussie Men's Sevens team and the former head coach of the Aussie Women's Sevens team. He coached the women's team to the first ever Olympic Sevens gold medal in Rio, Brazil, 2016, and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. So welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, how's things? How's uh How's Australia kicking on? Mate, we can't complain. I think we're in a <laughs> decent place to experience uh, the pandemic. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're in a, a pretty good position. And even actually this morning, I just went to the um, the kit launch for the Olympic team. So we was out there on Circular Quay there at, at the rocks on Sydney Harbour and um, things just sort of got even more real, which is which is awesome. The, uh, the goosebumps and the... And the motivation was uh, was certainly rising. Yeah, it's, and that's nice too. From like from a you know certain point of optimism as well. Yeah, well, I think it's something that um, the players, well, the athletes, all of them really just need to need to see. It. Like I think constantly throughout this period, they're getting asked, you know, is it on? Is it on? I was mm. like, of course it's on. It's been postponed. You know, it, it's on. So. But to have that um, something tangible that I can actually wear and see, yeah, I think it made a a big difference to their to their mental state. Nice one. Uh, we'll probably you know dip into some of those uh, those concepts later on um, as we get into the into the interview. But what about yourself? What, what's your rugby background? Playing um, originally? How did you get into the game? And what were some of those first experiences like? Yeah, I think I was five years old and my dad took me down to the local local club, East Tigers in, in Brisbane, down at Bottomley yeah. Park. And I remember getting tackled for the first time and my <laughs> head was uh, was sort of buried into the grass and um, you could smell the grass and you mm. could, you, know, you could, uh, for whatever reason, I, I loved it and I, I never, never stopped playing uh, from then. And rugby's given me so much as well, you know, friendships, um, discipline, and uh, even a post a post playing career, which I ended up in coaching. So, um, very fortunate, um, and I believe I've experienced everything rugby's had to offer. I've travelled around the world several times and played in um, England, Italy, USA, New Zealand, um, and just really uh, really enjoyed and, and thrived with everything that rugby's been able to to give, um, and uh, my job to to give back as well. So. Yeah, I think very early age, fell in love with the game and uh, haven't really stopped. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a, a common thread with a lot of lot of guests that I have on the show. And what what about those first coaching experiences? Who uh, who conned you into coaching first off? And uh, what were those first uh, sessions like? Yeah, um, David Nusifora actually got me. <laughs> nice. Uh, I never wanted to be a coach, to be honest. <laughs> sort of, um, I grew up wanting to play obviously and then mm. you know wear a suit and and go and, and go and go and work and i still don't mind putting on a suit but yeah I, I no intention of being being uh, a coach um probably because i didn't really understand it um, yeah 
I didn't know what kind of coach I wanted to be. Um, but in 20, 2010, I found myself back at the Reds um, playing in Super Rugby and Ewan McKenzie was my coach. And the mm. way that the way that he coached, I, I was really interested in and his, his style was not only about the technical strategy of on-field but the off-field side of things, not yeah. only dealing with individuals but the marketing, the, the economics, the strategy, um, you know, how to, how to get your team to perform better or get the game to perform better, which ultimately gets your team to perform better. So he was running it like, like a business and then he had the, the, the excitement to then do it on the weekend and, and put in match strategies. So I don't know. I've always found the rugby side of things pretty, pretty easy. Like we're all, mm. we've been playing a lot of footy technically understand the game and there are obviously guys who are, are better at than others, but that tends to be the easy bit. It's all the, at the high level, at the highest level, it's all about the, you know, the politics and the relationships and the, the entertainment and recruitment and your depth of, um, of team, the people around you, the psychology, basically running a business, but you're doing it in a, in a game you love. So that's sort of where it sort of started. And then David Nusifora, um was basically offered me, offered me my first uh, coaching role, which, the first one he offered, I turned down. It was the second one, which I, which I <laughs> nice. I had, uh, I've had uh, Jim McKay and uh, Bo Robinson. You, you might have been playing with Bo. Uh, yeah. They they both speak uh, really highly of you and McKenzie in that that time period uh, of the Reds. It was pretty magical, and for for Aussie rugby, it was uh, pretty awesome. Uh, what what were some of the 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 big memories from you and McKenzie that you get out of that period that are like, wow, that's, that's really special what he's doing there. Yeah. I just, he was always composed, which Mm. I always, um, you know, these coaches are generally pretty hard on the sleeve and they're, they're pretty emotional and Mm. they can really get lost in the, in the, in the moment, which again, I've been guilty of that. Yeah. (laughs) We care. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Controlling that and uh, and leading from the top, I guess with uh, you know with with your body language and attitude, I guess it all depends mm. what culture is. But you and very very composed, um, but then very strategic and very well planned and very 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 thoughtful. And then, uh, like I said, he he uh, he didn't just think about winning the game on the Saturday. He knew there were other things that went into it. You know, I think mm. he's um, written various articles about entertainment and winning. You know, because you need to get you need to get all your stakeholders on side to to make sure that um, again, as a as a coach, you're getting what you need or what you want to win. Mm. And uh, I just I really liked the way he he operated from from that point of view. Right, awesome. And what what about um, in those earlier days? Some of the some of the big mentors for you for your your coaching development and progression who who were who were some of those people and what were some of the the, the messages or lessons that you learned from them well, I was again um, fortunate or unfortunate because I traveled around the world largely because um, um, I wasn't good enough to stay in one place and I get <laughs> some of them some of them were, were by choice but I had um some amazing coaches throughout and different cultures. Like I said, all those different places I played mm. at, different countries all brought something different. Mm. And then I had such a diverse style of people. Um, you know, like I just rattled off like 
Ben Ryan, who ended up winning the, yeah. the gold medal with years of coach. You know, he he coached me. And Phil Davies at, at Wales. I had yeah. Stu Lancaster at, at Leeds. Um, I had a British line coach, Andy Keast at, at Worcester. Um, the Kiwi influence with Russell Jones, David Nusifora, um, even Brian Ashton came down and, and, wow. and uh, Ben Ryan. The Italian um, experience, just the way that they brought teams together and the importance they put on different things. You and Mackenzie. Um, yeah, so just you know, a variety of different ones. But then there's, you know, I certainly pull different things from from different people. But uh, David Nusifora was probably the biggest influence. Mm. Um, he actually coached me as well. And then he coached against me when he was at the Brumbies. And then he sort of offered me the job um, at Rugby Australia and then sort of mentored me um, for a good couple of years. And then uh, then he ended up working for me <laughs> as an assistant coach to the <laughs> which was quite odd, but yeah. um, incredibly like humbling uh, mm. for me. Uh, like a great for him to, to do that. Like it was very, just, it shows you the, uh, the, uh, the character of, of the guy, but, um, mm. and even now, like he's high performance in Ireland. Yeah. He's, he's kicking goals there. Yeah. He's still my um, sort of go-to for, for some big decisions, but yeah. he's very charismatic. Uh, again, very composed, planned. Um, he can step back. And and then uh, look at things, and then come up with the with the quickest path or the most intelligent way to get to where you to where you're going. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think um, if you I was going to label them, I think David would be would be certainly uh, at the top there. But then under that, there's just there's there's so many, and I think mm. that's the that's the um, the beauty of my career as a as a player and a coach was to be able to have that. And then uh, the ability to try and ascertain what works best for me in the right environment um, is something that you probably uh, uh, I've learnt as I've as I've gone along and become more more self aware. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's key. Context. Speaking of context, you you probably lived every every Aussie Aussie kid's dream by. Uh, you know, securing a gold medal at a, at an Olympic. What 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 was that experience like? Obviously, it's different being a coach than the, than the athlete. Um, and you know, it's the athletes who who did the work on the field, but loads of work done off the field by the coaching staff and and support staff and that. But what? How do you put that that experience into words? Uh, winning gold at Rio. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I get asked that a bit, and it, yeah, you know, no I, doubt. <laughs> But I mean, I only get asked it because we won, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We wouldn't be sitting here. Um, but it actually exceeded any any sort of expectation that we had. Like we always we're always going there to win it, but mm. everything about it. So you you sort of think about when we started, there was you know a, a benchmark or a goal that we wanted to go and win an Olympic gold medal, and then we mm. had this vision and this plan and. We grew as a team. I grew as a coach. Um, we built relationships. We had so much fun. Mm. Uh, and then to see it culminate into this event in, in Rio, which we almost executed to, to the way that we exactly wanted it and our plans basically unfolded um, how we sort of predicted it. And then beyond that, it was like um, Australia, we won the gold medal Tuesday morning, Australian time at 8 a.m., Mm. Australia unfortunately didn't win another gold medal for another three or four days. So everything yeah. was about was about the women's 
uh, team winning the gold medal. Mm. But it just it's just amplified by the effort you put in, the relationships you 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 build, the experiences uh, you had together, and then to see it, you know, into formulate into a result that you've all been striving towards. Like it really was beyond expectation. So yeah. Um, that's how I'd answer it. Yeah. Yeah. What What about managing that pressure? Because we, you know, Australians and not just Australians, but a lot of countries can be pretty harsh on their athletes uh, if if they don't, in inverted commas, perform, you know, to those expectations that the the public have, and often those expectations are um, a little bit, you know, out there in terms of reality or or context, all those kind of things. How did, how did you manage that across the across the tournament and in the lead up? Because that's that's obviously a lot of pressure uh, for for the yeah. players. Um, what what kind of strategies did you put in place for that? Yeah, we put a lot of planning into debilitators around what was going to not let us perform. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was the technical side, then there was the off field off field side. And that was probably one of the biggest ones was the the pressure, the media, the um, going in as number one, going as as the favourite. So we had to we had to choose an attitude or, a, or in the I guess it's the undertone of our culture, but going into it that we're going to the Olympics to perform without regret. So everything that we've done leading into it, our planning, our um, you know contingencies or whatever it is that that we're there. So when we do finish the Olympics, win, lose or draw we can actually walk away thinking we couldn't have done anything better. We are so happy or so proud of ourselves of, of, of what we did. And I think deep down we knew if we performed, we were going to win. So that was sort of our ultimate was to, to have that as our, mm. as our, um, as our sort of um, benchmark, but then, then putting in strategy and how to deal with the, with the pressure or deal with having to adapt or to, to be resilient. So we, Looked at what we could, who we could get involved, and our families were probably the one of the biggest. One they they got us to where we were. That so we basically brought them into the tent. So we had oh, this cool. Olympic family day where they experienced what we were going through. So just to give them an idea. We had the girls deliver our cultural piece. We had um, uh, an Olympic athlete, captain of the water polo team back then, Bronwyn Knox, and she was going to her third Olympics. Wow. We brought her mother in as well. So we had this whole sort of Q&A and, and question around how Bronnie felt at her first Olympics, second Olympics, how Bronnie's mum felt what she would have done differently as a parent. Um, so we got her and we got, we got media in to do mock interviews with the families as their kids were competing. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, got them, got them just training, but got them sort of involved and understood what an Olympic athlete was going to go through. And then – they became sort of guardians or gatekeepers of, of, of some of the performance issues. Mm. So, you know, we went through all the things that might happen while the girls were away, you know, whether it be media, you know, pets, grandmothers, breaking up with partners, and then what our a crisis management, I guess, is like what's mm. our structure of being able to do it. And then from a, a coaching or an organisation point of view was that we go to the Olympics and we don't perform – What's the plan? We go to the Olympics and we do perform. What's the plan? And mm. um, it's even bigger this this time around because you look at um, what we're probably most likely going to be doing is going to the Olympics, playing your event, and then going home to quarantine for two weeks. So uh-huh. can you imagine? Yeah. 
don't perform and you're sitting in a quarantine room for two weeks. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. yeah so there's all, all that to consider. But I think we, we went in with um, really, really well planned um, around different different things. But we you can't control everything. And then mm. our, our, our cultural um, piece was around being adaptive and being, being resilient and being creative. So if something did go wrong, it was like, Yep, roll with it. We'll, we'll sort it out. You know, nothing's a nothing's a problem. And of course, it of course it did. We got to Rio. We couldn't go in the village, so we had to go to our holding station. We got to the village. You know, things didn't work. This didn't work. That you know, like all those things that we completely expected, and it wasn't it wasn't an issue. Mm. And that so that that culture piece, I love that part of coaching. And how how did you how did you engage the players in that was that like a, a collective decision uh several conversations and then putting some things down on paper and living it what what was that what was yeah. that process yeah so it was it was led i mean it's got to come from the top so it was mm. led or you know led by by me but then everything every input is 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 from the players and then mm-hmm. every have a, like a cultural health check but the way that you design or deliver a culture is to look at your environment of which we compete in and I think your culture has to reflect that so if we're if we're traveling we sevens you travel to 10 different countries around the world Mm. Uh, there's a lot of resilience and being adaptive there then you're playing six six teams in two days so having to um, adapt to different opposition, have that intelligence to diff, different strategies, and um, and that, and the mentally tough to play injured, um, play really well and lose, play badly and win, play the next game, go to bed that night, wake up in the morning, play the most important game. So basically, do an audit of your environment, and then your culture sort of has to reflect that. Right. And then, uh, and then um, you know, within that within that group. How you how you're going to um, live or what behaviours you're going to have and that and that's probably you steer them to that to that sort of um, point and then it's over to them mm. and then every year we'd have a weekend and it'd just be the the cultural health check so we'd have our piece and then uh, and then adapt it because your your squad might change you might go from a really old experienced team mm. to a young development team or where we started out a team that had just turned pro. And then by Rio, they were sort of three-year professionals, world number one. They weren't, you know, like fifth or sixth anymore. So mm. how's it how's it reflected? What behaviours do do you do? So I think initially it was certainly directed by me, and then it was over to the over to the group. Yeah, cool, awesome. And what what about what about you as a coach? Like uh, an Olympic event's pretty massive, uh, three days, pretty high octane kind of you know sporting experience. How, how do you manage like your downtime and and even in game time your your emotions and and those kind of things? What have what have been some successful strategies for you? Yeah, I am. Um, I have this little card in my in my pocket or my, my wallet that I just like to refer back to, and it just sort of reminds you like why you're doing it and what, what your sort of values are and mm. ultimately uh, you're enjoying it. Um, and um, I don't know, the people that you're around um, sort of make you feel good. So, you know, whether it be staff or, or the players that you uh, you have the right people around you to who are going to be authentic and, and mm-hmm. honest and, uh, and sort of know you well. 
um, which is uh, which is great, and that's certainly what we had. But as a as a coach, you got to go to the Olympics or any big event in career best form, you know, because mm. you're, you're you're leading from the top. You set the tone, and if you're stressed and and worried and frazzled, it just um, it just vibrates through the whole team. So it's it's really important. If I give advice to Olympic coaches, is that you got to go there. Like all the hard work's done mm. when you. Olympics, you're just about um, being relaxed and positive, and just keeping an eye on every single player. Just making sure that you know they're not they're they're staying in the guardrails. They're not sort of dropping off here and from off there. That you're you're there for and that. That's your role because all the all the the strategy and the and the training and that that that's locked away. Yeah. Your job is just to keep them um, mentally happy and mentally confident. So. Yeah. You got to be in that position too. So you can't be cramming or stressing or whatever. Is it you know your last your, minute kind of yeah, changes or anything like that? Yeah, you're feeling good. You know whether it be your fitness, your your mental health. Um, you're you're in that position where you can be that person. Yeah, cool, awesome. And you've you've transitioned now into the the head coach role for the Aussie men's team uh, for the sevens. Um, what what's that been like? How's 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 that changeover? I think you you were interim with with both for a while there, so that would have made a, a smoother smoother change. Yeah, I had it in uh, 2015. I did um, I was coaching them both at the same time, and that right. was un- under the the uh, permission of the girls too. I didn't want to just go and do it, so we spoke to them awesome. about it. A three-month thing, and it, it turned out um, really, really good. Got the, the boys qualified and picked up some different things, and uh, and back to the girls for for gold. And then, yeah, um, making that decision was the hardest thing I've ever ever had to do. And uh, ultimately, it was it was the right thing to do for 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 them and and for the team. Like for a lot of them, they'd only had me as their coach, you know, for five or six years. Mm. Won the, won the Olympic gold medal. Then at Sydney, we had this unbelievable event where we didn't get a point scored against us. Uh, it was just for us to, both of us to evolve and uh, and be challenged in, in different ways. And it certainly it was a move um, across. It wasn't it wasn't up to the man. It wasn't mm. down. To the man. It, it was it was a it was across. And uh, like I said, the relationships and the and the the care and the love or the passion I have for the, for the, for the players um, will be with me forever. So very hard, very hard decision. And then so mm-hmm. making, but once it was made, it was, it felt it was the right thing. Mm-hmm. And then in the men's program, yeah, all, it was very challenging, all, all different, uh, different challenges there um, from what I would, from what I had when I ordered, audited them and I had them basically, I was meant to have the, the men's team after the world cup. And then uh I got them three months before the end of the season, and uh, it was you know a rush job. I just had a, uh, my second child, and it was you know all over the shop. So I sat back and just audited the whole sort of program, and then sort of came up with the vision to to change it and to execute it. Um, and the way that the team, what I saw was the way that they played, um, it needed some adjusting, and then a little bit of a, a cultural shift as well to maintain sustainability and to win benchmark events, not, not win, you know, win benchmark events when everything, everyone's at level, everyone's peaking mm. for the right time. Mm. And, and, and with that, with any change becomes resistance and uncertainty 
Um, and that's the things you have to deal with and, and making, making tough decisions. Um, yeah. I've never shied away with that with the, with the women and certainly didn't, didn't with the guys. And uh, um, probably a lot harder than what I anticipated, but you look at the, the results. Um, I think just before COVID, we are in some you know, unprecedented form uh, well, not unprecedented, but hadn't seen it for about 10 years. So, mm. um, yeah, it was starting to, not starting to, but it was certainly in the, in the right in the right direction. And COVID's thankfully just given us another year to uh, to be better. Yeah, yeah. And so how are you managing that time now um, with, with regards to not being able to play internationally? Um, how are you keeping the, the, the team, you know, competition ready, I suppose, because you're probably – you know, waiting for the starters gun to go off uh, at any time, and that's that's got to be a, a mental struggle for for you as a coach, but also the players. What, what are some of the strategies you're putting in place there? Yeah, we went through um, different phases, and the the first one we, we didn't prioritise physical; we prioritised mental. Mm, um, nice. You, everything that the player had was taken away. You know, playing as a team, travelling, their finances were heavily cut. Um, they couldn't even, you know, come to training and, and you know, high five each other. You know, it was like mm. all the all the stuff in the contact sport were young men was basically taken away. So how could we fill in those, those gaps? Um, There's no competition, so um, had lots of little little strategies. You know, within that little that little period, we had like competitions and COVID packs and and little competitions with videos and different things and then we slowly sort of built it up into training and then it was right okay we have a new a new assignment for you is that you're going to go and play 15s so we rang up all the super clubs and the in the club mm. in the club footy went them out and go okay your job here is to represent sevens and represent yourselves to give yourselves options but also to perform to see this is what the sevens program uh is all about you know these ruthless adaptive resilient skillful athletes so they all went out there and unbelievable club footy they were being you know touted as wallaby bolters in super rugby they were um, all training and then when they got their chances playing and they were you know talking to their gms and head coaches like where do we get more of these sevens guys kind of thing mm. so you see them now like timmy anstey's in the wallaby squad yeah Hockey Anderson at the Rebels is, is on fire. And then he, heaps of guys in the team um, have had contract offers from whether it be overseas or at super clubs for, for post-Olympics. So that was a really positive uh, positive thing. And then secondly, the, the team had limited funding, basically no funding, you know, whether we ended up getting a, a good bit of money from the government, but still well below or millions below what, what was sort of required for the program. So, mm. uh, and there was little resources within Rugby Australia for all the same reasons that we were struggling. So our second task was to become business development managers for, for the team, tax and networks and, and ideas around what we could do to, to generate funding or, um, you know, what, are, what what things do we have? And, and all the players were out there meeting with high net worth people, business owners, um, organisations that uh, had the capabilities to sponsor. And that was a really fun project. And a um, lot of it sort of came into fruition with, uh, with various, in various different ways. Um, and, uh, and we survived. So we, uh, 
we generated um, some money and um, got us enough just to get us there. And then we got a little bit more funding. And even now that sort of process is still going and we're sort of sitting here at the moment waiting for uh, an answer on, uh, on, on some big developments within our funding or through player-led um, um, initiatives. So that was one way of, uh, of dealing with it. So it was both, well, two ways. It was on and off the field. And yeah. Switched back into um, the, the physical high-performance Olympic sort of role. So it was about mental stability, um, obviously keeping our training up and, and mm. working on three key areas that we believed were going to be um, the difference for us performing at the Olympics. So they go play club footy, super rugby. They'd come into us once or twice a week and we work on those three areas. So when we did come back to, to uh, full-time sevens training, that those three areas were going to be unbelievable. And then yeah. we just sort of built. And then as, as you sort of said before, no international competition how are we going to play? How are we going to build combinations, cohesion, match fit? So we trained up a New South Wales team, a Queensland team, and an Australian Pacific team. And then there was up. And then we travel where we went to Narrabri, Armadale, and Sydney. And again, leveraging our contacts, leveraging a Super Rugby tournament, um, any sort of fans or stakeholders that were in those areas. And then we'd have tournaments in those areas. So we got to play at a, you know, teams that we were sort of pretty much coaching and then a, a diversity of um, Pacific team as well. So that was our, our hit there. And then actually next week, um, continuing from that, we're playing Australia, Australia Sevens versus Australia Super Select. So all the super players that aren't in the 23, we've asked mm. them to come and play Sevens, one, to prepare us, but two, to have a shot at the team, you know, yeah. put your hand up for select. So we've got two of those booked in, one next week and then uh, and then a month later if we don't end up playing New Zealand and, and Fiji, which is uh, which you've got fingers crossed for there. So there's the mental piece, obviously the physical piece, and then there's the competitions. So, you know, yeah. our areas, how can we best utilise that? And, and being in Australia, we're in a – pretty good position in terms of yeah. dealing with the pandemic and our weather's pretty good. We're not in lockdown constantly. So mm. we're in advantage there. Um, and then the top four countries, uh, New Zealand, South Africa, Fiji and Australia. That's how we finished at the World Series. And three of those teams are next door. We're neighbours. Mm. So as soon as borders do open or things relax, you know, we can – we can play against the best and yeah. hopefully hopefully we do that. And then, you know, and I've spoken to the Fiji and New Zealand coaches and Gareth and, and Clark that, you know, we all go to the Olympics and we come home with three medals. We can find out which ones they are, but <laughs> we're, we're, all, we're in a good position to prepare um, the Oceania for, for uh, a successful Olympics. So yeah. as soon as we get the green light, we can uh, we can play some international footy and, and, and get us ahead. Yeah, well, I'm just uh, that's awesome, and I'm just thinking of the off field stuff that you did with the with the players, and it, that in ten years time, a lot of them are going to look back and and say, I learnt these skills when I was in the Aussie Seven setup because there was this global pandemic, and instead of you know 
kicking cans and going into our shells, we we got about it and we 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 got out and did some work. So they essentially did a a one year apprenticeship that's going to hold them in really good stead post career, which is one of the big focus points now in in professional rugby is is players off the field. Like, have there any have there been any like players who have just been like shining moments where it's like they've found their their post career kind of path out of that, or is it just like lots of good little stories? No, lots, lots of good, good little ones. Like a lot of them, like I think most people know, the better you are off the field, the better you are on the field. Mm. You know, and particularly when you get those guys towards the end of their careers, they start to to really stress. But you, you don't want that to be the case. You want it to be, you know, a sevens career or rugby career is an apprenticeship, is a career. You come out the other way, at the other end. You're mm. a, you're a very well established. Um, intelligent and capable person to work to work anywhere, um, but look, the athletes in this program like you, you can't you can't get by um, not being intelligent. Like because of the the nature or the environment that we, which we compete in, you constantly have to think and adapt. You mm. have to be self, have to be able to position yourself. Like your personality is under the microscope because there's only twelve of you on tour mm. for three weeks. Um, you can't really hide. You have to fit into this to this group. You know, if you go away on a tour with forty players and um, you know 10, 10 staff, you can you can hide and get around, but you can't here. And then on the field, you can't hide there either. So you do have to you have to be pretty pretty self aware. And then um, yeah, other like we we got um, we got chippies, we got um, personal trainers, we got businessmen, we got um, all kinds of um, oh, we've got artists and we've got heaps of uni students. So they're, they're all, they found it as a, as a, well, I guess it, it amped it up a bit, mm. you know, like because of that, like, and I, and I need some some hobbies and I certainly encourage that. And yeah. um, I think you, you spoke before about, you know, within this, you got to choose an attitude in this pandemic. you got to like, mm. okay, what, what are we going to, are we going to kick stones or are we going to look at what, what the advantage is and uh, we found again did the audit we found so many advantages and then we even used our we had a trip to munich just before the olympic qualifier so we went to munich for the to to prepare for the qualifier and we um, went out to dakar one of the concentration camps yeah. and just like everywhere we go we try and bring something back from or learn something about history or about the country and how it all sort of ties in and um I bought every player um, Man Search for Meaning, uh, Victor Frankl. It's a, he's a psychologist, but he was in a concentration camp and we had, did a bit of a book review on it and had a bit of fun with it. And then the pandemic hit and there were so many correlations to to the book, to what the world was going through. And mm. I'm not, for one instance, comparing it to a concentration camp. No, of course. There were a lot of like, lessons we could learn. And the biggest one was was choosing an attitude yeah. uh, that to, to all suffering, um, it, there's something that's happening for a reason. You can choose your attitude, choose your your freedom, I guess. So we had to choose an attitude that this was of positivity really and opportunity. Mm. And uh, so we looked at all things that were benefit from it and the biggest one being it gives us another year to prepare. Yeah. You know? So we're like, okay, let's go for it. So that was the foundation of it and then um, – yeah, we went went from there. 
Awesome. No, it sounds great. And, uh, you know, lots of, lots of positives, uh, coming out of it, no doubt. Um, all right. What, are, what about for, for coaches out there for sevens coaches? I, I think, you know, touching on, you know, your transition from the, the, the women's team to the men's team, obviously, um, you know, profiling that team and you talk about doing an audit on that team. Um, what, when, when you get together a, a group of players and you're, you're forming a sevens team, what, what are some of the processes you do in terms of auditing them or, or looking at, um, you know, a, a, a playing profile of the group and then, then determining what your, your style of play will be based on that? Yeah, exactly that. It's basically you look at, you look at what you've got or what you could have mm. and try and find out a um, – or formulate a point of difference. So, yeah, if, you know, if you looked at, um, you know, like you compare the World Series, you'd like Australia, are we going to be the biggest team? You know, probably not. No. You know, we've got yeah. Samoans and the, and the Fijians and the, and the Maoris, like the Kiwis. Are we going to be the fastest team? Probably not. Mm. You know, like uh, the, the Americans with Carlin Isles and Perry Baker, the, mm. the South Africa. we got some quick players, don't get me wrong. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, what have we got, you know, or what is what is the game in within the game that, that we can have? You know, we can be the most adaptive, the most strategic, which is like the smartest. Um, mm. Are we going to be the team that just loves pressure, you know, and then you sort of build it, build your game plan around that. So you can't be unrealistic. Like I, you just see, because the Kiwis are the best, everyone talks about the Kiwis, they just try and plug in what New Zealand do into the mm. team that they've got. Not going to yeah. work. No. So, audit it and go right. What have we got? What are we really good at? What does the game look like? And you can use all the you know the moneyball stats and trying to trying to work work that out. Mm. And then you develop your vision, and then you then you build it around that. And um, certainly with uh, with my sort of style and looking at what what the Australian team has, is that I work on a on a sort of principle around it. You give them the knowledge knowledge around how to play sevens or how to how to uh, draw two on one and you know just basically mm. the knowledge around okay there's three in the ruck there that means the space must be out there um and then you demand vision so you're always looking up and that's the the, the smart piece mm-hmm. knowledge um vision decision and then you've if you've got the knowledge or the way the team plays and the different the different um um if they do this we do this then you look up then you've got the information, so then you can make a decision. So knowledge, vision, decision, and then the easier bit is the execution, which is mm. it's repetitive training, yeah. perfection, boring, do it again and again and again and again. That's basically the, you know, you, you do your, right, what's the team? What have we got? What can I get? Um, what's going to be our point of difference? And then knowledge, vision, decision, execution. Cool. Awesome, good advice. And full disclosure here: um, before our interview, I um, I went on YouTube and I watched the uh, the gold medal uh, final with the women's team. And um, one thing I I, uh, I found from that um, was three three of the tries were scored off tap moves. Um, that that kind of jumped out at me a bit. What 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 kind of work do you do in preparing that? Surprisingly, not. Yeah. Because um, again, if you looked at you looked at sevens and you look at origin of tries and the actual ball in play and whatever, mm. that seventy or sixty to seventy five percent of the game is unstructured. Mm. 
But the, the tries that you're talking about, one of them we had seven, they had six. It was just yeah, a simple I, one. Right, yeah. It was more or less a, um, a quick tap five metres out um, mm-hmm. from Charlotte. I can't yeah. remember the other one. The first but, one was uh, Donagani in the corner. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. You, you yeah. spend some time on it, but yeah. um, the way I do it is that 60 to 75% of our training is from unstructured. And if yeah. you look at, um, again, look at um, the stats of a game and say taps, um, I think out of, say, uh, I'd say there was 10 taps, seven mm. of them are going to be scored off quick taps. Three of them are going to be unstructured, uh, going to be structured setups that might go three phases. Right. It's, yes, it's a tap, but it's basically a penalty quick tap go. So your plan has to be really good. Um, and then if you looked at a game of sevens, um, I think there's 21 rucks in a, in a game. This is um, on average. There's yep. eight eight restarts, which is pretty much unstructured to me, eight mm. restarts. Mm. Uh, and then scrums, there's 2.6 and line outs is 2.1, of which one of them might be yours. So yeah. uh, the taps are quick, but they're, they're a high higher proportion. But um, the restarts is the most. Restarts is eight. So on average, there's six tries plus the, the halftime and full-time. Mm. Uh, scrums, there's, there's two. And line outs is two if you're lucky, and then penalties is I think again seven or eight. But out of those seven or eight, six of them are quick. Yeah, so yeah. There is don't, there is an emphasis on it, mm. but I I wouldn't get um, sort of uh, focused in on set piece mm. within within sevens just because it's a different game to to fifteens and yeah. your ability your ability to go from structured to unstructured. In a defense and attack is where you're going to probably make make your make your difference. But teams play differently. Some mm. teams are only a set piece team; they're not as fit as others. So they want to slow it down and all that kind of stuff. But mm. um, it is a big part, but a 25 percent part. Yeah. No, oh, and that's good. That's good information for coaches too, in terms of structuring their their session plans in in terms of what they're going to allocate importance to. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tim. And uh, we always end the the podcast with the same final four questions. Uh, when you were a kid growing up and you first fell in love with uh, with the game, who who were some of the players that really stood out to you? I loved watching uh, Michael Liner. Oh play. yeah, nice. Yeah, he was um, smooth. Was smooth, exactly. Yeah. Or composure, and he was always, uh, yeah, under the pressure moments, he always stood up. But uh, mm. yeah, I, it was a, it was a fly half, which was that I played with some short help. Yeah. But I just very classy individual. Yeah, that's a good uh, Queensland answer too. You've you've yeah, earned points I there. <laughs> I used to run run the tee out to him at uh, at East when he was played for uni, but he'd come to East and I'd run the tee out to him. So yeah. epic, <laughs> awesome. And second question: What about now? Who are, who are some of the players you're you're liking watching on the world stage, whether it's fifteens or sevens, men's or women's? Seven. Yeah, I'll go with sevens, and it's Charlotte Castlick. Yeah. Amazing. Every time he gets the ball, um, something's going to happen, and it's not just like you sort of associate her with attack. But you know, having coached her, her defense and her ability to, to win the ball at the ruck and her mm. ruthlessness is is something else. So to me, she's the complete the complete player, and she's exciting to watch for so many yeah. reasons. Yeah. No, and no, I really really appreciate um, some of your LinkedIn posts about. Uh, 
the women's team and how your four-year-old son asked you if, uh, yeah. if boys are allowed to play rugby as well. Um, I had a similar experience with my, uh, she's now 10, but when, when she was eight, she was going out to mini rugby and we just watched the, the Aussie women, women's team and she wanted to have her hair braided uh, like, like Charlotte Caslick for, the, for, the, for a uh, little tournament there. So that was pretty awesome and the impact that, that the players uh, have on, on people around the world is uh, pretty powerful. Yeah, tremendous impact. And, uh, yeah, that was, it was a pretty uh, enlightening day when my son said that. It was just like, yeah, wow. Like, yeah. this is a, what a what an impact they've had on the generation. Yeah, awesome. Okay, and third question, what, are, what about coaching? Uh, who, who are some of the high-profile coaches out there that you've, you, you like to, you know, bounce some ideas off? Uh, you, you, you mentioned New Sephora. Who are, who are some other names out there that, that you, you respect what they're doing? Yeah, look, I, I love talking to other sports probably mm. more than what I do my own. Um, and being linked up in the AIS and that being in an Olympic sport, you get those opportunities. Uh, you know, so whether it be, you know, Barry Dancer from hockey or Marcus Black from, from, from sailing, um, you, just, you just get a different perspective on, you know, like I said to you, the, the, the technical side is probably the easier bit. It's the other bits, the communication, the systems, um, the monitoring, the preparation, the psychology. Mm. That, that's that's the really cool bit about about sport is that you're running a business within a game that that you love. Um, so those those guys certainly have an impact, and then you just listen to guys on the radio and on podcasts and stuff like that. But but ultimately, they have come from my from my sport. And mm. um, David Newsom, for as I mentioned before, um, certainly in progressing and uh, and critiquing my career, but getting me into it was mm. you and McKenzie. Just not by yeah. him mentoring me at all, just by me watching him and thinking, "Hey, this is this is something that's uh, that looks like fun." Yeah, awesome. And uh, final question: What about what about someone in the grassroots who's who doesn't have the the profile of those coaches uh, that you you feel deserves some recognition? I'll go right down to the grassroots. You've never heard of this guy, but it's just through <laughs> my experiences of coaching my son, who's now uh, six, and. Uh, this bloke actually wrote me into doing it, um, and it was the hardest hour of my week. It, it was <laughs> incredible and rewarding. Um, but he's he does under six, under sevens, under eights a lot of time. His name is Mark Mark Shaw at East Wallaroos, um, but uh, and he's a very successful businessman. But he just you know just puts the effort in, and that's the ultimate grassroots legend. And, yeah, yeah. I, I admire him. Yeah, I've uh, I've coached my uh, my daughters in the in the minis and my son coming in soon and uh, yeah, you earn your popsicle at the end of the end of the session, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm coaching them tonight, and it's just about Easter, so I'm actually I'm <laughs> getting fired up. <laughs> I'm bringing this chocolate Easter egg. That's uh, awesome because uh, it's the same shape as a footy. Yeah, was, right, right, you guys got to pass this, and if it breaks, then. <laughs> you're not eating it but if it doesn't break then you get to eat it so it's bri- I've turned to bribery I'm pretty sure they're eating it either way <laughs> <laughs> I don't stand a chance yeah no no way awesome well thanks very much Tim really enjoyed the chat and um you know can't wait to to see um how both the Aussie men's and women's team uh progress in the Olympics when it happens and uh want to want to say thanks for giving up some of your time for the chat Pleasure. thanks for me Andrew no awesome thanks cheers <laughs> Thanks 
for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. Also follow us via Twitter at RugbyCoachesCNR or via the website therugbycoachescorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.